The History Channel original podcast. Sports history this week. March 2nd, 1962. I'm Kalen Jones. When you think of historic sports arenas, glitzy cathedrals in the middle of big cities like Madison Square Garden or Yankee Stadium probably come to mind. But there's also the hidden gems, drafty gymnasiums based in small towns that carry rich histories of their own, like Hershey Sports Arena in Hershey, Pennsylvania. It was, yeah, a small hockey arena in the middle of an amusement park in the middle of a town dedicated to chocolate and in the middle of Pennsylvania. It's an 8,000-seat venue made of gray concrete where the air outside always smells like chocolate. Inside, it smells like chocolate too, mixed with popcorn and cigarettes. Not exactly Madison Square Garden. The program was uh, 15 cents. Says the highest price for any home game was $3. General mission, a dollar and a quarter. Doubleheaders, $1.40. And yet, several NBA games have already been played here in Hershey just this season. Tonight, the Philadelphia Warriors are taking on the New York Knicks, over 100 miles from both teams' home cities. And the Hershey Sports Arena is still begging for patrons. A nearby appliance store even includes tickets to games with the purchase of a refrigerator. Security is lax, local kids sneak in all the time and grab a few of the thousands of empty seats. The Warriors are led by the great Wilt Chamberlain, the 7'1 former MVP. This game won't impact the standings, as both teams are far out of title contention this late in the season. In fact, Chamberlain is treating the visit like just another game. We have pinball machines in the lobby. He said something to somebody that this is going to be a good night because he really did well in the pinball machines. Even though only roughly 4,000 people are here as the game tips off, tens of thousands more will eventually claim that they too sat courtside for what's set to become one of the seminal moments in NBA history. Today, Wilt Chamberlain, a larger-than-life basketball superstar, takes the floor and attempts to pull off a larger-than-life feat arguably the most ambitious in the history of team sports. How do the opponents, the venue, and a unique combination of circumstances create the perfect setup for an unforgettable performance? And how does the NBA fundamentally change the way basketball is played to ensure that it will almost certainly never happen again? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Despite being basketball's tallest giants, centers, who are both extraordinarily tall and dominant, are a rarity, especially in the earliest days of pro hoops. 
The league's first dominant big man enters the league in 1949. And one of America's outstanding players, George Mike. He's six feet nine, just under the basket. Mikan leads the Minneapolis Lakers to a title as a rookie, overpowering opponents in a way that no one has ever seen before. Height was everything in the NBA in those days. And Mikan certainly was the first, I think, consistent, effective, low-post scorer. Frank Fitzpatrick spent more than 40 years as a sports writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He's written extensively about the history of Philadelphia sports, as well as several books on college basketball. It was pretty difficult to stop a guy his height in those days. There weren't a lot of talented big guys. The goal of every team seemed to be to find a seven-footer because it was such a low-post-oriented game. Mikan is so powerful, so unstoppable, that during a game in 1950, the Fort Wayne Pistons decide the only way to beat the Lakers is just to stall. The Pistons barely even shoot the ball spending long stretches of the game simply passing back and forth to each other just to keep the ball out of Mikan's hands. In the fourth quarter, the two teams combined for only four points. And even though the Pistons ultimately win the game 19-18, with Mikan scoring 15 of his team's 18 points, the Pistons' home crowd boos their team and the cowardly strategy they use. The Lakers head coach says after the game that a showing like that would kill professional basketball. Sure enough, the NBA responds in 1954 by creating the shot clock. A team would now have to try to score within 24 seconds or give the ball back to the other team. The game becomes faster paced and more exciting. Players begin setting all sorts of scoring records. Well, one player in particular. Wilton Norman Chamberlain, a.k.a. the Big Dipper. Few rookies in any sport can dominate against professionals the way Wilt Chamberlain does when he enters the league in 1959. He was Wilt Chamberlain, nearly seven feet tall even then, who was the most remarkable high school hoop player ever to come on the scene. With his extraordinary height, he was head and shoulders over his rivals, you might say. He's the number one overall pick out of the University of Kansas, and during his first NBA season, leads the Philadelphia Warriors to a second-place finish in the Eastern Conference. Here's Gary Pomerantz, author of Wilt 1962 and The Last Pass, a book about the Boston Celtics of the same era. He was seven foot one, 260 pounds, ran the floor like a train. He had a massive back angling down to about a 31-inch waist. Dolph Shays, a star with the Syracuse Nationals, said that Will Chamberlain's body was the most perfect instrument created by God to play basketball. NBA audiences love Will. He is, without a doubt, the game's biggest star. Attendance for Warriors games increases by 23% before he even plays a game. Even in Boston, a city known for its avid basketball fans, the average crowd size doubles when Chamberlain comes to town. He becomes the first player ever to be named both Rookie of the Year and the league's most valuable player in the same season, averaging 37 points and 27 rebounds. He set league records in his first year and has smashed them one by one since. There are few records left for Wilt to tilt. By his third season in the league, Chamberlain is having what would be a career game for any other player pretty much every night. 
they played 80 games in the season and Wilt scored more than 50 points 43 times. He averaged 40 points a game against Bill Russell, the greatest defensive center in NBA history, maybe. And somehow he never gets tired. Maybe the most remarkable stat of all from that season is that in a 48-minute game, he averaged 48 and a half minutes played that season. He only missed eight minutes and 33 seconds the entire season when he got tossed out of a game for saying something unkind about a referee's mother. You look at the centers that were in the league at the same time, you, you know, big guys like Walt Bellamy, Nate Thurman, and Wilt just physically manhandled these guys. Even Russell will tell you, he was no match strength for strength with, with Wilt. He was just overpower you. By 1961, Chamberlain has matured into a well-rounded player, incorporating elements of both power and finesse to his game. His favorite shot was his fadeaway jumper, uh, which you couldn't block, but he's, he's, you know, 12, 15 feet on either side of the, of the, of the basket, jumping and, and banking in off, off the backboard and not dunking it. That's Ron Pollock, currently the head statistician for the Philadelphia 76ers. He's been working for the pro basketball team in Philadelphia for more than six decades. He started working for the Philadelphia Warriors in 1957, when he was just 10 years old, getting a front row seat for much of Chamberlain's career. He had 25 blocks in one game. An opponent shot it, and he would catch it, which is a block shot and a rebound, and then he'd throw it to a, somebody breaking down for a... So it was a block shot, a rebound, and an assist in the same motion. All in one motion. And, and that just... He got used to things like this. There's really only one flaw in Chamberlain's game shooting free throws. When a player gets fouled while taking a shot, he'll get two free throws, two shots with no one guarding him 15 feet away from the basket. Historically, NBA players make about 75% of their free throws. The best shooters make upwards of 90%. But Chamberlain... He was basically a 50% free throw shooter, which was always strange because he could make his fadeaway shot from you know 18 feet on either side with, with guys hanging on him. He would say that he was thinking about fighting Muhammad Ali in an exhibition, in a boxing match. And Wilt's dad was heard to say, Wilt, don't you think you'd be better served by just practicing free throws? <laughs> in high school, Chamberlain did come up with a pretty hilarious fix for his poor free throw shooting. When he was in high school, he would you know, run to the free throw line and dunk it. They quickly changed the rules to say that you have to stand behind the line while shooting free throws. Still, it's safe to say that Chamberlain, as an athlete, loves to put on a show, and he's got the personality to match. He was seven foot one, and he had an ego that was even larger. He never said, I don't know, to a question. He answered whether he knew or not. He went fishing, he caught the biggest fish. He could box Muhammad Ali. He was the best track and field guy in the country. I mean, there, there was no there was no degrees with Will Chamberlain. Everything was, you know, I'm the best at what I do. And in, in many respects, he's somebody who could back it up to, to a great extent. There's even a story about him claiming a mountain lion attacked him and that he killed it with his bare hands. It's the larger-than-life mentality you kind of have to have in order to break the hallowed records that Chamberlain goes on the set. Before Wilt, 
no one in the NBA had even come close to scoring 3,000 points in a season. But with under 10 games left in the 1962 season, Chamberlain has an outside chance at 4,000. In February, he gets especially hot, scoring more than 60 points in 4 out of 5 games. And next on the schedule, a game against the lowly New York Knicks. The game is, this, as I say, the 75th game of the 80-game season. They're just playing out the string. It's too late for the Warriors to catch the Celtics. The Knicks were a last-place team. A game between Philadelphia and New York, two of the league's marquee cities, yet it's scheduled to be played basically in the middle of nowhere. About 100 miles west of Philly, in Hershey, Pennsylvania, the rural town that's home to the chocolate company of the same name. Playing in smaller towns is common for the NBA at this time. The crowds that they were drawing in most of these readers weren't anything to write home about, so they said, well, let's take it on the road and see if we can, you know, drum up a little interest on the borders of our fan base. So the Warriors take a team bus to the amusement park in Hershey. All of the players ride together, except Wilt Chamberlain. In fact, Chamberlain doesn't even live in Philadelphia, despite the team buying a luxury apartment for him in downtown Philly. Instead, Chamberlain commutes from New York City. He had a fancy apartment off Central Park West, and he had a historic nightclub in Harlem, Big Wilt's Smalls Paradise. Hanging out with Etta James and Red Fox and Cannonball Adderley it was a quite a, a scene. You know, Wilt moved through the room like he owned all of Harlem, like he owned all of Manhattan. And the night before playing the Knicks? He was in the company of a lady friend the night before and was, you know, spending the, the night with her. And he drove to Hershey from New York that afternoon. He used his attorney's car. He was waiting for the delivery of a Bentley for himself, but he was driving a fancy Cadillac to Hershey. Before going to the arena to meet up with his team, Chamberlain makes a stop in Hershey Park to play some video games. He got there a little early and was playing the rifle games in the arcade. And of course, Wilt being Wilt said he set an all-time record. Meanwhile, local children and families and chocolate factory workers filter into the stands. In the early part of the evening, the fact that Wilt Chamberlain and the Warriors are in town isn't even the main source of excitement. Fans are busy watching the warm-up event. An exhibition game played before the main event, and that was between the uh, Philadelphia Eagles and the Baltimore Colts. These NFL players would get 20 bucks, 25 bucks, beer money. And that's what they did. You know, they did it to stay in shape. They did it to have fun. Yes, that's two NFL football teams featuring huge names at the time, like Johnny Unitas and Sonny Jurgensen playing basketball. They would do anything they could to fill up the arena. And, and as it was, it was half empty. Finally, after all the fanfare, the Warriors take the floor. And Chamberlain gets to work. He makes his first five shots as the Warriors jump out to a quick 19-3 lead. By the end of the first quarter, Chamberlain has 23 points. And most surprisingly, he's made all nine of his free throws by shooting them underhanded. 
was told underhand he had a better chance because at least the ball could bounce on the rim a little bit and maybe pop in. He couldn't make them the normal way. He just was like many big men. His hands were big and he just wasn't a great shooter. Don't tell Wilt that, but he wasn't. He would bend down, his knees flaring out wide. He looked like a, a grown-up trying to sit in a kindergartner's chair. And he would just flick the ball up. As silly, or at least unusual, as it might have looked, it's working. Chamberlain drops another 18 points in the second quarter, heading into the locker room for halftime with 41, on pace to break his own record of 78 points in a single night. For pretty much anyone else in the NBA, 41 points by halftime would be a cause for celebration. For Wilt, it's just another Friday night. He puts up numbers like this every week. But Chamberlain's teammate Guy Rogers, a six-foot-tall lefty point guard, thinks tonight is different. They're going to try something they've never done before. In the locker room, Rogers tells the team, let's keep getting the ball to dip. His teammates agree. They want to see how far this thing can go. The Warriors come back onto the court for the second half with a new team strategy. Wilt isn't just going for the single-game scoring record anymore. No, he's going for immortality. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Back in December of 1961, Wilt Chamberlain went head-to-head with another one of the NBA's biggest stars, Elgin Baylor of the Lakers. Baylor scored 63 points as the Lakers beat the Warriors in triple overtime. But Chamberlain set the NBA single-game scoring record with 78 points in the loss. After the game, many felt that it was just a matter of time before Chamberlain would beat his own mark by a lot. Again, here's Gary Pomerantz author of Wilt 1962. His coach, Frank McGuire, a rookie coach for in the NBA, a longtime college coach, had said it's going to happen. Wilt would score 100 points someday. It's going to happen one of these days. And tonight, the Warriors take their positions on the court at the Hershey Sports Arena against the New York Knicks, thinking this could be Wilt's chance. Entering the second half with 41 points, he's got a legitimate shot at a new record, especially now that winning the game is no longer the team's primary objective. No, the goal of the night is to feed the ball to the big man every chance they get. Frank Fitzpatrick, 
longtime Philadelphia sports writer, believes that the game being held outside Philadelphia plays a major role in this strategy. Hershey was probably the perfect venue. It was a little under the radar. So it was a lot under the radar, actually. And it was a, basically a meaningless game. I mean, I think ordinarily his, his teammates might have balked a little bit more. They may have resented that a little, at, you know, if it had been a game that really meant something or if it had been a game in a larger venue. But I think Hershey allowed him the opportunity. This would be a perfect place for me to get 100. But as motivated as the Warriors are to drive up Chamberlain's point totals, the prideful Knicks players are equally motivated to stop him. The Knicks would try to build a fort around Wilt. They'd have the guards stepping on his feet. They'd have, you know, the forwards elbowing him and pulling on him and anything, anything they could do. But as it turns out, the Knicks, on this particular night at least, just don't have the defensive firepower to even slow down a center like Chamberlain. The Knicks do have a six foot ten center by the name of Phil Jordan on their roster. But he didn't play that night because he was 13 miles away at the Hotel Penn Harris in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, sort of working through a late night bender from the night before. With Jordan out, the next best option? Daryl Imhoff, who had won a gold medal with the 1960 U.S. Olympic team. Well, he fouled out after playing a total of 20 minutes, leaving only six foot eight inch rookie Cleveland Buckner, who was built sort of like a flagpole. And Chamberlain takes full advantage, putting up another 28 points in the third quarter. Yet nationwide, very few people are even aware that any of this is happening. Again, here's Ron Pollock, who's just a kid working for the Warriors in 1962 with his father, Harvey Pollan, the publicity director of the team. Major newspapers didn't cover games unless it was in the city. There were more newspapers back then, like New York had like seven papers and Philadelphia had four. Uh, so of the Philadelphia papers, only one sent a writer for the bulletin. So teams have to get a bit creative to spread the word. Writers would sit with typewriters. They would type a page at a time. And my first job when I was like 10 was to take a page from a writer, run it behind the scenes to a room where the uh, guy works for Western Union, would type it in again on a teletype machine to be sent to the newspaper. Then they would set it, put it out there. Locally, however, there's a real buzz in the air. Word even spreads to the NFL players who left the arena after playing their exhibition game earlier. Both football teams, they went to a, a bar and the word got to them around halftime what was going on, and they all came back. When they heard he had like 16 points in the third quarter, they all came back to the game. Chamberlain enters the fourth quarter with 69 points. It's clear that he's having a massive night. But the crowd can't really be sure how massive in this rinky-dink arena. There was no big scoreboard where you look up and it says... Number 13, you know, big fella, 17 points, 19 points, 20. It was just a small, boxy uh, scoreboard, metallic, used by the Hershey Bears hockey team. Chamberlain later admits that, for a man who literally never rested during games, he's exhausted by this point in the night. But as they approach the midway point of the fourth quarter, Harvey Pollock slides a sheet of paper uh, on the table, the scorer's table, to the play announcer, Dave Zinkoff, the mighty Zink. 
And Dave Zinkoff announced, ladies and gentlemen, Will Chamberlain has just broken his own scoring record with 79 points. So now everything changes. Now for the first time, context is provided. Everything intensifies. And for the Knicks, it was an intensified dread. The Knicks do not want to be on the losing end of history. So they start using unusual tactics for a team that's losing by 20 points. They would hold the ball. And then when the Warriors had the ball, they would foul somebody else as soon as they could. So I found foul guard as soon as they threw it in. So uh, it's got to be sort of like a circus because uh, the, the Knicks are running around so nobody can foul them. And then and the Warriors are trying to get the ball in the will as quickly as they can. I think some of the Knicks got pretty upset about it. They were almost a couple of fights. But Wilt Chamberlain keeps on scoring. 85 points. 90. 95. 98. The sons of the Hershey chocolate factory workers are now leaving their seats and they're all pressed two and three deep around the court waiting for the great moment. With under a minute remaining, a 23-year-old bench warmer by the name of Joe Rucklick, a man who barely played five minutes a game, receives the ball. Richie Guerin of the Knicks charges at him for an intentional foul, but Rucklick flips a last-second pass to Chamberlain, just inches from the basket, and Chamberlain throws it down. 100 points. The Warriors radio play-by-play announcer, Bill Campbell, makes the iconic call. He made it. He made it. He made it. A dipper dunk. And in the arena, pandemonium. It was like the dam broke, and the kids surged onto the court, and uh, the game stopped, and... Guy Rogers, his teammate, is just throwing basketballs into the air. Wilt's final line, 36 out of 63 field goals, 28 out of 32 free throws, 59 points in the second half, all still NBA records. He's the first man to score 100 points in a single game. For such a tall man, he handled himself gracefully in every move. 100 points. Clearly, the moment needs to be commemorated in some significant way. But with no TV crews and very minimal media presence, the Warriors get help from whoever happens to be there. A photographer for the Associated Press named Paul Vathis. He'd won a Pulitzer Prize the year before, and he wasn't even there on duty that night. He was there with his son for his son's 10th birthday. So the photographer Vathis says to Harvey Pollock, I want to get a picture of Wilt, you know, that signifies 100. And Harvey, quick thinking, and he takes a sheet of paper and writes 100 on it. And he said, here, Wilt, hold this. And, you know, it's become the most famous photograph in NBA history. But afterward, Rather than celebrating with his teammates in either Hershey or Philadelphia, Chamberlain hitches a ride back home to New York City with several Knicks players. He falls asleep on the drive, 
completely spent after such a max effort game. But he wakes up periodically throughout the trip when he hears the Knicks players grumbling to each other. Can you believe the SOB scored 100 points against us? Chamberlain's 100-point game soon becomes the talk of the league. It took a few days for it to, to settle in. Bill Russell just said the big fella finally did it. But not everyone worships Chamberlain and his new gold standard for scoring. New York Daily News sports editor Jimmy Powers writes, Basketball is not prospering because most normal-sized American youngsters or adults cannot identify themselves with the freakish stars. You just can't sell a seven-foot basketball-stuffing monster to even the most gullible adolescent. When the Warriors and Knicks play each other again just two days later in New York City, Madison Square Garden is only half full. Knicks center Daryl Imhoff gets a standing ovation when he fouls out after holding Chamberlain to only 58 points and 35 rebounds. Within two seasons, the NBA makes a major rule change to keep big men like Chamberlain from overpowering their opponents and monopolizing the game. They changed the rule by widening the key or the lane from 12 feet to 16 feet, which is where it is now still today. The key is the name of the large painted rectangle just beneath the baskets. Players are not allowed to stand inside the key for more than three seconds. The thing with, with Wilt is he could be standing down on the low right side, just outside the 12-foot key. He'd get the ball, he could take one long lunge and he'd be at the basket and he could dunk. But when they change it to 16, you can't do that. After the NBA makes the change, Chamberlain never scores 70 points in a game again. But it all just seems to roll off the Big Dipper's back. He wasn't as intense as a Jordan or a Russell. He, he was more laid back, which I know Billy Cunningham has always said, it's a good thing that Will was laid back because if, you know, if, if he got mad, he would kill you. You know, So I don't think he had that same kind of inner fire that those guys had. Over the course of the following decades, professional basketball sees some major changes. The NBA adopts a three-point line in 1979, and the league makes hand-checking illegal in 2005, making it much harder for defenders to slow down the game's top scores. Both changes lead to significant spikes in offense and overall scoring. But six-plus decades later, even as numerous individual scoring records have fallen, Wilt Chamberlain's single-game record of 100 points is still considered one of the most unbreakable marks in all of sports. Thanks for listening to Sports History This Week. For moments to our history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Other notable sports stories that happened this week? 1986. Major League Baseball suspends or fines a total of 21 players in the biggest drug scandal in the sports history. And 1993, college basketball coach Jim Valvano delivers an unforgettable speech at the ESPYs in the midst of his year-long battle with cancer, encouraging everyone in the crowd, don't give up, don't ever give up. If you'd like to get in touch, please shoot us an email at sportspod at history.com or leave us a voicemail at 212-351-0410. We'd love to hear from you. Special thanks to our guests, Ron Pollock, 
head statistician for the Philadelphia 76ers, Frank Fitzpatrick, former sports writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer and author of And the Walls Came Tumbling Down, the basketball game that changed American sports, and Gary Pomerantz, author of Wilt 1962 and his latest book, The Last Pass, Kuzi, Russell, The Celtics, and What Matters in the End. This episode was produced by David Ingber. It was story edited by me, Kaylin Jones, and sound designed by The Podglomerate. Sports History This Week is also produced by Cooper McKim. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our associate producers are Emma Fredericks and Hazel May. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Sports History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. 